0: Good afternoon. The committee will now come to order. This hearing of the Subcommittee of State Department and USAID Management, International Operations and Bilateral International Development, only in Washington can you have a title that that (laughs) is that long, is entitled A Review of the uh, FY 2017 State Department and USAID Budget Request. I'd like to begin by welcoming our witnesses, uh, Mr. Pitkin, uh, Mr. Sastry and Mr. Napoli. Thank you guys for being here. We appreciate it. I talked to your boss yesterday um, I'm anxious to get a lot of your testimony in the record before um, I think um, uh, Undersecretary Secretary Higginbotham is, is to be before the full committee next week. So uh, we'll try not to be redundant. Uh, we've looked at um, th- some of the questions, the ranking member and I have, have looked at these to uh, make sure that we're, we'll try not to do that for sake of your time and hers as well. We're here to discuss the International Affairs budget, State Department that is, uh, request for fiscal year 2017, which includes our State Department, USAID, and other funding for diplomatic engagement and foreign assistance. Today is intended to be a deep dive into the budget request with those who've come up with the budget at State and USAID. Uh, I personally serve on both the Foreign Relations Committee and the Budget Committee, uh, which I believe gives me a unique understanding and as, as does the ranking member, uh, Senator Kane. Uh, I believe that gives us a unique understanding of of how uh, our global security crisis and the fiscal crisis are actually intertwined. Given our current fiscal situation, every dollar we spend on state and USAID, if you look at it that way, is basically borrowed, which makes it even more uh, important that we understand uh, the request. With that said, the United States is and should continue to be the most philanthropic nation in the history of the world. We have no shortage of problems in the world that require American leadership. As this administration plans to draw down American forces in Afghanistan, as we continue to have lower troop levels in Iraq, the cost of the State Department maintaining a presence in these difficult high-threat environments increase. Today, I'd like to cover a number of issues, including long-term budget trends, the issue of OCO funding, the State Department and USAID's plans to combat the Zika virus, how monitoring and evaluation results are integrated into budget decisions, and how this budget would address the growing migration crisis in Europe, to name just a few. Also, as follow-up questions on how some of the USAID money has been used in the past in places like Haiti, for example. We certainly have a lot of ground to cover, so with that, let me turn it to our ranking member, Senator Tim Kaine.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. We're looking forward to this uh, hearing today. Uh, as uh, Chairman Purdue mentioned, I am uh, also s- serve with him on the Budget Committee, and I'm on the Armed Services Committee as well, and I feel like... A lot of this hearing is really about, uh, you know, an important part of American power, very connected to our military mission, but on the diplomacy side, and and I'll make the point, and this isn't to chide anybody with the State Department, but as as good as you guys often are, uh, professional men and women are, in advocating for your budget, the DOD is often even better at advocating for your budget. Um, General Mattis uh, testified at a SASC hearing in 2013 if you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition. That's a direct quote. Secretary Gates is, is, is known for saying the same thing and one of the things that's, that's interested me as an Armed Services uh, Committee member is hearing how uh, strongly they support uh, full budget for the State Department. Uh, Secretary Kerry reminded us last week during the full committee hearing that this total budget is less than 1% of the federal budget Um, And it is a statement of our priorities and the degree to which, with which we prioritize diplomacy abroad. I'm a a big believer in this budget. Uh, You've got organizations like the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition that make the case for the importance of it um, because we do so much good in this, in this area. um, But we have so many concerns as well. So we're going to be digging a lot into it. Uh, The Chair mentioned Zika, for example. We want to understand the President's proposal to spend money to battle. Zika, but we also want to understand uh, how the State Department is prioritizing keeping our own personnel safe, which is, I know, got to be something that is of significant concern to all of you. Um, We've got uh, military conflicts around the world that we know will not end without some political resolution. Yemen, Libya, Afghanistan, Syria, state, and USAID play an important role as those conflicts are hopefully moving toward an end, but then even after Uh, we have, we're entering a new, Chapter in the relationship with Colombia after three presidents three administrations have been consistent in plan Colombia We're moving to PAS Colombia and trying to play an important role in that uh, in that strong allies continuing uh, progress Which is a uh, good for the people of Colombia, but also good for the people of the region uh, and of the world And I also have a particular interest of having followed the plan Colombia to Post Colombia particular interest in how the State Department would intend to use the $750 million uh, appropriation that we just uh, uh, put into the budget for the Central American uh, uh, prosperity process, process, and the President has an additional billion dollar request in this year. So kind of how you intend to use those funds, what would be the metrics under which we would analyze whether we were being successful, we would have reason to believe, because of Plan Colombia's success, that we could be successful. will only be successful if we spend the dollars uh, the right way. So there's many, many uh, issues uh, in in this budget, uh, state and USAID, and we'll dig into them with other colleagues who are here, both uh, now and when we have a full committee uh, meeting next week. But we appreciate your service and look forward to your testimony. And uh, thank you, Mr. Chair.
0: Thank you. And now we'll hear from our witnesses. I'll introduce you individually prior to your testimony. Uh, First, we have uh, Mr. Douglas Pitkin. The Director of Bureau of Budget and Planning at the State Department. Mr. Pitkin is responsible for developing the diplomatic engagement budget, overseeing strategic planning and performance management of those resources, as well as control of all departmental resources. He served in this position since uh, June 2015. Prior to coming to the Office of Budget and Planning, Mr. Pickin served in the Iraq Transition Assistance Office in Baghdad and in the Office of Management and Budget. Mr. Pitkin, thank you for your service. Uh, we're anxious to hear your testimony.
2: Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Kane, and distinguished members of the subcommittee for inviting my colleagues and I to discuss the FY17 Department of State and USAID budget request. At a time when the demand for U.S. leadership and engagement has never been greater, this budget provides America's diplomats and development professionals with the tools they need to advance our national security interests and build a more safer, more safe and prosperous world. The total request for this Department of State and USAID for FY17 is $50.1 billion, of which $35.2 billion is in our base enduring budget and $14.9 billion is requested in overseas contingency operations. This combined funding, as you said, still constitutes just 1% of total federal spending. As the director of the State Department's Bureau of Budget and Planning, I will focus on our diplomatic engagement request, which comprises our people, our diplomatic and embassy security programs, public diplomacy initiatives, our treaty-based commitments to the United Nations and other international organizations, and our global management platform. This portion of the budget, in terms of appropriations, totals over $16.1 billion, which for FY17 constitutes a $560 million increase over the 2016 omnibus level. This portion of the budget constitutes 32 percent of the total state ID request with the foreign assistance and USAID budget making up the remaining 68 percent. We are submitting the details of our overall budget request and many of the numbers as part of the USAID state fact sheet for the record, but I will highlight a few of the specifics that drive the majority of our request. A large portion of our request is for our operating platform of security programs and diplomatic facility construction, for which we're requesting a total of $6.1 billion. $3.7 billion of that supports our Diplomatic Security Bureau operations and other worldwide security protection programs, which actively secure our personnel, our facilities, and our our information. $2.4 billion of that request is for our diplomatic facility construction and maintenance, which provides the department's share of the capital security cost-sharing program, which builds safe, secure, and functional diplomatic facilities overseas. Both components of that security request sustain our department's commitment to implementing the Benghazi Accountability Review Board recommendation of several years ago. As these programs do help us manage risk and mitigate overseas threats, they are major recipients of OCO funding both in this budget and over the last few years. Uh, As you know, the 2015 Bipartisan Budget Agreement yielded a significant increase for OCO resources for the Department and USID for FY16 and 2017. Since 2012, OCO has been instrumental to achieving many of our national security objectives especially on the diplomatic engagement side for managing the transitions to a largely civilian presence in Iraq and Afghanistan, which previously had been funded by periodic and sometimes unpredictable supplementals. For Iraq, the diplomatic engagement request includes $1.3 billion for our embassy and consulate operations, as well as diplomatic securities funding, funding for guard facilities in Embassy Baghdad, increased contract costs, and security equipment. In collaboration with the Department of Defense, the U.S. Embassy in Iraq continues to support the diplomatic engagement critical to strengthening the Iraqi government and supporting our Operation Inherent Resolve's counter isil efforts. In Afghanistan, our mission focuses on our engagement and outreach to the mil- and part of the military transition, and our total request for Afghanistan is $1.2 billion, which also includes significant increases for the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. We are also leveraging OCO to expand the Global Engagement Center, which is a high priority for the Department, and another example of our close collaboration with the Department of Defense. The Global Engagement Center will continue countering violent extremist messaging and communications, by empowering our partners' efforts to undermine disinformation espoused by extremist and terrorist groups, including ISIL and Al-Qaeda. The Department has brought in a senior counterterrorism leader, Michael Lumpkin, over from DOD to synchronize efforts across the national security spectrum and with our international partners in both the governmental and non-governmental community. To sustain these efforts over the long term, the 2017 President's budget once again proposes to end sequestration for Function 150 and other discretionary spending for FY18. We anticipate that the future of OCA will play heavily to that for FY18 as well. Other priorities in our budget continue to strengthen U.S. relations with the international community. We have $1.2 billion for our public diplomacy and global engagement goals to expand our outreach and engagement programs. We also have requests for funding to support our contributions to international organizations, $1.4 billion for the UN and other international bodies, $2.4 billion for UN peacekeeping to address conflict-related crises. In addition to our appropriated funding, we do retain significant fee revenues for our consular and border security programs. That portion of our budget provides services to Americans who travel as well as foreign visitors. These programs facilitate legitimate travel, which is vital to our economy, while denying entry to individuals who threaten our nation's people. Uh, last summer, uh, the QDDR uh, did come out. It was the Department's second quadrennial diplomacy and development review. While not specifically a budget document, the QDR does guide our management efforts, and our request does include funds, particularly for our Bureau of Human Resources, to increase our workforce diversity, with almost a two-thirds increase over prior funding for outreach uh, to new uh, foreign service leaders. This is just a brief summary of our requests, and I want to assure that we are committed to being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. With continued congressional support, I'm sure we can have a positive impact in promoting our foreign policy priorities at home and abroad, and I look forward to answering your questions.
0: Thank you, Mr. Pitkin. Uh, we now turn to, to Mr. Hari uh, Sastry, the Director of US Foreign Assistance uh, Resources. Mr. Sastry is a career member of the Senior Executive Service, and in his current role manages the Department of State and USAID Foreign Assistant Budget. He's previously served in the Department of Commerce as well as the White House Office of Management Bud- Budget. Mr. Sastry.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Kane, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting us to speak with you today about the fiscal year FY17 State Department and USAID foreign assistance budget request. As Secretary Kerry noted, and as you noted in recent hearing before the committee, while the foreign affairs request makes up just 1% of the total federal budget, it may very well impact much of history that will be written about this era. I'm here to discuss our FY 2017 foreign assistance priorities, out-year challenges and long-term spending trends, our efforts to enhance foreign assistance management and aid transparency and interagency coordination. The FY 2017 State Department and USAID request of $50.1 billion includes $34 billion for foreign assistance programs and activities. The budget request directly supports our national security strategy and our foreign policy priorities. Our foreign assistance continues to provide strong and sustainable leadership in the face of unprecedented challenges. The Secretary spoke to the Committee at length about the Department's FY 2017 request and our priorities, and I'm not going to go through all of them today. Some of the critical priorities that he highlighted include our efforts to counter violent extremism, Daesh, and Russian aggression, to support climate change, democracy and governance, and global health programs, and to address other critical regional challenges and opportunities. We've provided a fact sheet summarizing the main points of our request for the record. A core component of the FY 2017 Foreign Assistance Request includes $9.6 billion in overseas contingency operations funding, a level which is aligned with the cap set in the 2015 Bipartisan Budget Act and equal to the amount provided to us by Congress in FY 2016. The OCO request will enable us to prevent, address, and help countries to recover from human-caused crises and natural disasters. While the Bipartisan Budget Act effectively increased the amount of OCO appropriated for foreign assistance by 59% above the FY15 level, our FY16 base appropriation was reduced by 8% below the FY15 level. The future of base versus OCO is not clearly defined and as we look toward planning our FY2018 budget, we look forward to working with you to effectively tackle this issue. In addition to the OCO base issues, a broader out-year challenge for foreign assistance is that we recognize that the various crises around the world are producing more refugees and more disasters, and we are asked to take the lead in responding to more global health pandemics. We are constantly asked to address new challenges that land on the front pages of The Washington Post today, while simultaneously providing continued support to countries that focus on longer-term needs as we aim to ensure those countries do not end up on the front page tomorrow. The demands on our limited foreign assistance resources show no signs of abating. So we ask ourselves, how do we do more with less? First, we look to strengthening our internal systems and processes. Informed data-driven decisions drive our strategy to address these increasing global challenges and are a critical component of the Department's commitment to achieving the most effective U.S. foreign policy outcomes and greater accountability. Last year, the Department updated and expanded its evaluation policy. We have also expanded the quantity and quality of data available on foreignassistance.gov, a website we manage on behalf of the U.S. government, to publish the aid data of the 22 agencies that implement foreign assistance activities for the American public. These critical monitoring, evaluation, and transparency efforts make us a government better able to serve the American people and more effective in our use of U.S. dollars abroad. Second, we look at how we can best leverage these resources. We are able to tackle many global issues through close coordination with our agency partners. We work directly with the Departments of Defense, Treasury, Agriculture, Homeland Security, the Centers for Disease Control, and many others to address these complex challenges. We are doing everything we can to ensure U.S. taxpayer dollars are used as efficiently and effectively as possible within the top line provided by Congress. Today's global challenges make clear that what may appear to be a distant concern has the power to impact Americans right here on our home soil. Our leadership role in addressing these issues is important now more than ever. It is essential to promoting our goals and objectives abroad, stimulating the economy and creating jobs, and protecting the American people and our values here at home. To adapt to this ever evolving global landscape, foreign assistance must be, as the President said in his recent State of the Union address, a part of our national security, not something separate, not charity. Foreign assistance is and must be seen as a powerful tool that enables our nation to continue to lead the world in effective solutions to global challenges.
0: Thank you for your continued support and I look forward to answering any questions you might have. Thank you. (laughs) Finally, we will hear from uh, Mr. Roman uh, Napoli, the acting director of the Office of Budget and Resource Management at USAID. In this role, he provides advice to agency leadership on a range of budget issues including performance management, budget planning, and financial management. He has previously served as the head of budget formulation and execution for USAID's program budget, as well as the head of the strategic planning and resources for the Middle East Partnership Initiative. Mr. Napoli.
4: Thank you, Chairman Perdue, Ranking Member Kane, and members of the subcommittee. I'm very pleased to join you to discuss the U.S. Agency for International Development's FY 2017 budget request. Our request totals $22.7 billion and reflects the critical role that development plays in advancing U.S. interests and values abroad. As the lead on development in the U.S. government, USAID is now better positioned and more capable of making a sizable impact around the world, leading not just with our dollars, but with leadership that the international community and the American people expect. We do this in four ways. First, this request helps USAID foster and sustain development progress all over the world. USAID will institutionalize proven investments by fostering inclusive economic growth and strengthening democratic governance through tested and proven interventions. This work is lifting millions out of extreme poverty and helping countries become open, peaceful, and flourishing partners for the United States. The request will enable USAID to double down on efforts that are delivering results and continue to build the conditions that make progress possible. With this budget, we will continue to save lives and improve health worldwide by contributing to global efforts to end preventable child and maternal death, creating an AIDS-free generation, and protecting communities from infectious diseases. PEPFAR is well on track to reach bold HIV and AIDS prevention and treatment targets, and we see the same opportunity with malaria. 90% of all malaria deaths occur in sub-Saharan Africa, most of which are among children under five. But we've already seen significant declines in child mortality due to our work, with reductions up to 55%. This budget includes a total increase of $200 million to expand and broaden our malaria work. Second, the request enables USAID to prevent, mitigate, and respond to man-made and natural humanitarian crises that are occurring at unprecedented scale and frequency. USAID's response to crisis around the globe is intricately linked to our development mission. This this request will enable USAID to provide life-saving responses to areas with the most vulnerable populations. We will provide emergency food supplies, address the underlying causes of food security, and assist victims of conflict and natural disaster. Third, this budget supports our critical work to confront threats to national security and global stability. USAID is providing critical support to Central America where we are building on our current investments by providing expertise to host governments as they make necessary reforms, scaling up proven community-based interventions, and training youth for a 21st century workforce while helping businesses have the financial and market access to invest and generate jobs. Finally, this budget will position USAID to continue to lead and meet the needs of a changing world by investing in approaches that work. We will emphasize knowledge and evidence-based learning, and we will support the men and women of USAID as they proudly serve the American people in increasingly challenging environments. With this request, we will enhance science, evaluation and learning with $196 million in funding for the Global Development Lab and the Policy Planning and Learning Bureau. Investments in the lab will enable USAID to develop and scale breakthrough solutions, leverage more out of our funding, and approve the sustainability of our development investments by attracting private sector resources. The request also includes necessary support for USAID's staffing capacity with a requested $1.7 billion across USAID administrative expense accounts to, to sustain ongoing operations and build on the institutional reforms we have undertaken with USAID Forward. While there is tremendous ambition in this request, we acknowledge that the expectations for USAID are as diverse and as multifaceted as the problems we address. While these issues are complex, USAID is evolving and fundamentally changing the way we do business, integrating innovation into all of our work, leveraging our resources for greater impact, and focusing like never before on measuring and delivering results. We envision a world where the most vulnerable are emerging from extreme poverty and contributing to stable democratic societies, building a safer world that promotes the dignity and freedom of people everywhere and advances our security and
0: prosperity. And with that, we look forward to your questions. Well, thank you all. I uh, I look forward to your, your answers here. Um, And again, let me just, for the record, remind us all that uh, we will have the uh, Under Secretary uh, Higginbotham here next week to answer questions uh, about the budget as well and other issues. So today we're gonna, I'm gonna dial into some of these uh, detail uh, questions that uh, we hopefully won't get into next week. I I wanna put this in perspective if I could. First of all, uh, in in the spirit of of really nonpartisanship, which is what I think Senator Kane and I on this subcommittee and then Uh, Senator uh, Corker and uh, uh, Cardin have done uh, in the full committee is that this is one of those committees that really does have a record uh, of bipartisanship and and really non-partisanship. And we look at State Department that way. Senator Kane's comments are exactly correct. You know, as we pull out of these areas, we know the pressure is increasing on state. And honestly, uh, I wanna give some perspective to this uh, with that comment in mind. And that is that, you know, if you look at since 2009, the cost of the State Department has been fairly flat. As a matter of fact, this is a budget request that actually is lower than last year's budget request. And I I don't want to gloss over that. Uh, As a business guy, I appreciate that. So uh, having said that, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about some history, just so we have perspective when we talk about this particular budget. If we go back a few years, let's go back um, and look at it two different ways. The State Department was spending it on average somewhere between 25 and $30 billion a year for quite a long period of time. Now as a percentage of GDP, uh, it, it actually, since 09, has actually declined from about 0.4% of GDP to about 0.3% of GDP. So let's put that in perspective. And, uh, and I think you're to be congratulated on that, uh, from that perspective. I kind of look at it the other way in looking at, at hard dollars though, and say, okay, here's the mission, I know it's changing, it's dynamic, and here's how we spend money against that. So the, the percentage of GDP is a is one benchmark that I think we use, it's not the end all. Having said that, uh, can you help me with the perspective of what we're doing and say, uh, I know we had the surge in Iraq and so forth. Mr. Pitkin, can you address that to start with, uh, anybody else has a comment on that, i appreciate it, but can you speak to sort of what we've seen, and, and is this a new norm or is there some anticipation that uh, somehow the world is going to get safer and we can go back to where it was maybe uh, in 2001 or 2000 to 2008, for example. The question is, um, with all the dynamic threats around the world, and the pressures on Saying, I'm not trying to lead you into an answer, but I, I really am trying to figure out what that $20 billion is going for in, in this new world.
2: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, I certainly hope, of course, that the world does get safer and that our budget can help move us in that direction. But certainly. As part of the department's management team, I frequently hear the reports from our Assistant Secretary for Diplomatic Security, Greg Starr, who is very candid about the threats that we face uh, overseas, and that they're evolving nature, that they're unpredictable, and that they can emerge even in countries like, like France, as we saw uh, earlier or last year, that are unexpected. Um, and so we have to be able to be mindful of those threats, not just in what we currently call the frontline states or the high-threat posts, but other posts where our adversaries have the capacity to strike unexpectedly. Um, So but going back to the original question, I have been with the Bureau of Budget and Planning since uh, 2007, and certainly the the main driver that I have seen for our operating costs has been our presence in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And as you noted, I I actually came from the Iraq office and worked in the Embassy Baghdad, primarily actually on the foreign assistance side. Uh, And one of the challenges that certainly the department faced was as the military was drawing down, there was a transition plan in which the Department of State uh, has or was and has taken over uh, the lion's share of the responsibility for the operating platform from DoD. Uh, and that comes with a cost. It comes with a cost for operating in an environment with, where we can't rely on the local economy, where we have to bring in uh, employees from outside. We have very unique and challenging security conditions. Uh, and so since that time, and particularly since the creation of OCO, uh, we have made significant investments, both one-time investments in facilities and recurring investments in people and programs to help protect our staff and our other interagency partners in Embassy Baghdad. The same trend we're seeing in Embassy in Afghanistan. Um, Now in Afghanistan, we've drawn down more, and now we just are focused on Embassy Kabul, Uh, but the same thing, we are seeing as the threat evolves, as the DOD forces and international partners draw down, more of that security platform falls upon the Department of State uh, and we, take, we try to be appropriate and take appropriate measures. I think last year in the FY16 omnibus and the 16 budget, we tried to contain some of those costs, but now for 17, just the way that the contract cycles move, we are seeing increasing costs uh, that we are trying to address in this budget request.
0: Is it safe to say that during, a, I hate to look at it this simplistically, I know it's not, but if you look at the war period, say between 02 and 2009, um, while we have fighting forces in a country, the need for state expense is not as great as it is as, as we see after the departure of those uh, defense forces. Is that, is that a correct, simplistic way to look at it? Because I'm looking at, is that part of the run up in that 30 billion, it's, it's a 76% increase. It's not on this watch, I understand that, but I'm trying to look historically to say, is this a new norm or do we have potential to put, uh, eventually bring that back down
2: Uh, I certainly hope we can bring it down over time, but that would definitely depend on security conditions on the ground, and um, we did make decisions several years ago under previous uh, leadership to try to uh, constrain some of our Iraq presence to just the two consulates at Embassy Baghdad, one, partly for security reasons, because the more sites, the more acreage we had to protect, the more movements we had, the more we exposed our people to risk. It also did have expensive costs, but primarily security and getting the job done and achieving our mission and working with the Iraqi government was the key priority. Um, it has declined somewhat, but we actually were getting a lot of support and from DoD previously. DoD helped provide our security. It wasn't free. Um, but as DoD is drawn down, that entire cost falls upon the Department of State. So I would say it's a shift. It's one, a, a fairly stable presence. But as DOD withdraws its forces, we have to pick up the slack to help protect the personnel who remain.
0: Uh, my time is gonna run out, but Mr. Napoleon, I'd like to address the, uh, the follow-up. You mentioned in your testimony that um, one of the issues is trying to make sure that the money that is invested has a good result. And so I'd like to talk about Haiti for a minute. Um, I was elected in November of 14, and um, between then and the time I was sworn in as a private uh, citizen, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. To uh, try to rebuild a school and uh, hopefully some housing and so forth for an orphanage, 275 kids down there. And it really touched us that, you know, in five years after the earthquake, not a lot had changed, frankly. I mean, I, I understand that the Navy was down there early, uh, USAID was there early, and so forth, and we did a lot of good. Um, however, um, I was really troubled by uh, the state of, of the situation, particularly if, if I'm correct, that we've spent some $4, trillion, $4 billion uh, in Haiti. And I, I have a particular question you know, as to the, the effectiveness of, of money spent there. Um, we know that historically, uh, Haiti has always been the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. We know there were allegations of corruption there for decades, um, none of this is new. But in February and March of 2015, USAID itself suspended two contractors that had been working on a flagship $30 million uh, housing project, I think it was called Caracol Ecam, if I'm correct, um, due to faulty home construction, poor drainage, you know, you go, the list goes on. It was also a question about where it was put. There's a lot of housing that was built in, uh, in and around Port-au-Prince. It wasn't where the people were living, they were in other areas where they could get clear ground. Um, and so I'm not sure how effective that was. Can you speak to the follow-up um, that USAID has in a country like Haiti to be sure that the money it goes to the people that, um, that needs to help, that we're not just using U.S. resources, that we're using local resources when we can, and that the results are, after a five-year period of time, effectively what we wanted out of $4 billion investment.
4: Senator, thank you for that, and thank you for sharing your personal experience. You know, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in our hemisphere, and so it has a particular amount of attention, especially after the earthquake there. I think when we talk about thinking about Haiti and how we follow up and how we make good, there's a number of things that we think about, but really it's, you know, our work in the political space, really kind of writing the governance of the country, helping them to govern themselves, put things in place that are going to lead that government down a road to full rehabilitation. But for USAID's investments, you know, there are a couple of things that I think we really want to talk about in terms of just really quickly saying things like really bringing in capital and other things through our Development Credit Authority, where we have the Despora, Haitian Despora, and Haitian business leaders coming, finding ways to work with USAID and leveraging that money in the country. That's the kinds of things that I think really help, one, lower the U.S. government's risk, but also allow us to do things that are sustainable and locally owned. So I think there's a lot of challenges in Haiti and that's something we can talk more about, You know, I think following the hearing. But for now, it, from my perspective is we've done a lot. We've gotten 98 plus percent people out of temporary housing. There has been a lot of progress, but there's gonna be continue to be a lot of things we need to do in Haiti forward. And this this budget does include a healthy request for continuing some of that
0: work. I've uh, a time, uh, I will come back to one follow up question on that in a minute, but in the, for the sake of time, um, we'll go to the ranking member, uh, Senator Kane.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, I appreciate the testimony, and I'll probably have multiple uh, chunks of questions too, but Mr. Pitkin, i want to start with you, just sort of a budget philosophy question, because you've been doing this at State since, did you say '06, 07? 2007, yeah. And then you were at OMB prior. That is correct. Um, we have now done two two-year budgets in a row. Um, It wasn't easy getting there. We got to the first one after a shutdown. We got to the second one in the middle of a speaker retiring. So I'm not sure we can always count on something (laughs) like that. Uh, But I really like two-year budgets. I'm a former governor. We always did two-year budgets. Senator Isaacson has had a two-year budget bill for years. I'm a co-sponsor of it. Um, We've kind of gotten in this bit where we do a two-year budget deal and then single-year appropriations. But once we do the first appropriations bill, it gives people at least kind of a range of reason if they know the top line for year two sort of what to expect. I I really feel like the economy outside, but also our inside operation does a lot better the more certainty we can provide it. And congressional activity around the budget has been a big uncertainty generator rather than a certainty generator. We're having a, a little bit of a debate potentially right now in the budget committee, and a number of us are on that committee, about whether we stick with the two year budget deal and then just work on appropriations this year in response to the president's submitted budget, or whether we actually go back in and alter year two of the two-year budget deal that we struck in October. Do you agree with me that, that certainty is generally a good thing, and that you know we, the, the two-year budget concept, if we can normalize it and try to honor it going forward, would provide some benefit um, in terms of the fiscal planning for an agency like State?
2: Uh, uh, Thank you, Senator. Well, it's difficult for me to speak to the broader budget process because certainly there are a number of equities, and as evidenced in the FY17 request, even our request for state had to take in consideration the range of challenges that the administration tried to cope with on both the discretionary and mandatory side of the budget. Uh, So I recognize that even in negotiating a single-year budget with a two-year budget deal, there are going to be different puts and takes in order to achieve uh, the right balance for the American people that's fiscally responsible. Um, But in terms of planning, yes, to a certain degree working within a planning ceiling helps us set expectations. It helps us try to know what uh, the external stakeholders would consider fiscally responsible. Uh, That's why the request that we sent forward stuck to the OCO ceiling that was uh, negotiated last fall, even as we made different trade-offs within the OCO level. And part of the dynamic for our request is some programs that we tried to shift into the base to get it out of OCO because we thought it was more of a base program to make room for other OCO related priorities, such as the security efforts I referenced earlier. So a certain degree of of certainty or planning uh, agreement helps us, but we recognize it's part of a a broader political dynamic and that we have to be able to explain the trade-offs for
1: what happens if we have to work with less resources or address new challenges. Thank you for that. Now, a question about OCO for all of you, again, kind of a a broader question. Um, You know, there is a legitimate, use of an OCO account because there are true contingencies. There is also a degree to which OCO can be used just to kind of skate around budget caps. I think what we've done in the two two two-year deals that we've done, the Murray-Ryan deal in December 2013 and the deal we got in October 2015, is basically not only have we done two-year budgets but we've kind of of decided we will treat the budget caps as a discipline but not a straitjacket, as a starting point and a default but not just an ironclad uh, and impermeable uh, straitjacket, and so um, we've adjusted off the budget caps in both the, the first two-year deal and the second one. Um, share a little bit about, from each of your perspective, as we're thinking about an apropos, you know, the, our budget and apropos work. The, the way we ought to look at OCO. Obviously, it's more predictable if it's in the base you know, what, it, what is a base expenditure, what is an OCO expenditure? I mean, you kind of hinted at it, the idea of is, it, do we think it's gonna be regular and continuing versus truly episodic? But if you, from each of your agencies would offer us advice as we're grappling with this OCO question, that could be helpful.
3: Um, thank you, Mr. Senator. I think um, what the chairman said earlier uh, when he asked the question, is it too simplistic? I think that is a part of the answer really is, um, as we look into the out years and as DOD, for example, clears space in certain areas, it is State Department and that's certainly on the assistance side that we're, that we're going in. And we often have programs that are going to last longer than a short-term surge. Building governance and anything it takes, takes time. So the, the budget deal certainly provided welcome relief from the sequestration. It provided some planning certainty. That was, both of those things were very good. But, in order to, but our reliance on OCO increased. And, as the secretary said last week, that's something we need to tackle going forward. And so what we did really was we shifted a lot of programs that we had traditionally funded through the base appropriation that do have a little bit of a longer term um, look to them, and we've funded them through OCO because that's, mm-hmm. you know that's the tool that we had. Mm-hmm. So going forward, we certainly have this challenge um, of how do we Respond in many more parts of the world than we were responding to in 2004, or 2005, or 2006, um, and how do we maintain that? Because we do see that you know we don't see the pressures on the assistance side really abating much at all in the in the short term. Of course, we hope that will come down in the long term, but um, in the near future, we just we don't we don't see that. And The real drivers have been, um, you know, the the conflicts have driven humanitarian costs um, up and. Yeah. Um, Etc. So, Mr. Napolitano.
4: Yeah, I won't add too much more to what was said, but I think from our perspective at USAID, one of the things we look at is you know 90% over 90% of our international disaster assistance account is now in OCO, <clears throat> and while we can see a way in which that makes that framing works in the short term, in the long term we know very well that part of what we do in the disaster assistance account is also make investments in disaster readiness working Mm -hmm. to make communities more resilient to future external shocks. So there is a little bit of conflict there that I think over the longer term will have to be resolved.
1: I I don't want OCO to end up being like the Willie Sutton line, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. We're not gonna vary the budget caps, but if we could just put it in the OCO account, then everybody will be going there. So some rational, Understanding of, of real what is an OCO expenditure and what is a base budget expenditure something that is members of this committee and the budget committee too we're going to grapple with I'm going to say my questions about individual items for a next round for uh, Senator Isaacson's sake. thank you Senator Isaacson.
5: thank you Senator Purdue uh, let, let me ask Mr Pipkin help me here your state your first page your printed testimony you say the president's budget is fifty four fifty point one billion thirty five point two of which is enduring I think that's the word. Then Mr. Sastry, your first line says the FY 2017 budget is 50.1 billion, which is the same number. Then it says 34 billion of which is foreign assistance. Is foreign assistance and enduring the same thing?
3: Uh, no, no, Mr. Senator. On each, on um, of the 50.1 billion, 34 billion is foreign assistance. That is split between our base uh, piece and our OCO piece. So our base piece is. Um, approximately 25 billion and our OCO piece is about 9 billion.
5: So 25 billion is foreign assistance?
3: 34 is the total. That 34... Two
5: separate accounts?
3: Correct. Correct.
5: How much of that goes to Israel? 3.1 billion. So about 10% of all foreign assistance goes to Israel? Correct. The point I want to make on that is I, I have been caught, as has every senator, with people who think, well, if you just repeal the foreign assistance budget, you can balance the budget, you never have any problems as a country, and our debt goes away. It's probably the best buy we've got in the entire budget for peace and security, and I think enduring is a, an intriguing and accurate word, but I think to know that 10% foreign assistance goes to Israel. And I always ask the question of my constituents who complain about foreign assistance, how much do you think it would cost us to build and maintain a military base in the Middle East? It'd be a heck of a lot more than $3 billion a year. So it's a great return on the dollar, tremendous return on the dollar. Mr. No, Roman Napoli, by the way, is a great name. You ought to, you ought to have been in the Oscars the other night. You, you, you would have won one. In fact, I thought I saw Roman Poli there, but I guess I didn't. Anyway, never mind. In your testimony, you said USA, you said the accounts, you said the president's funding request for accounts from which USAID, USAID administers assistance is 22.7 billion. How did? Is that out of the 50.1 total, or is that another?
4: No, sir, that's, that's inclusive of the number, and it's inclusive of the $30 billion number that Mr. Sastry used.
5: So foreign assistance, USAID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all comes under the umbrella of 50.1. Yes, sir. Just out of different component accounts. Is that right? Yes, sir. That's right. What about embassy security and embassy improvements around the world, or is that in this 50.1 billion as well? Uh, yes, Senator is. 6.1 in total. Is there any new embassy or replacement embassy we're building in this budget?
2: Yes, we have uh, funding in our capital security cost-sharing program to build uh, four new embassy facilities, uh, and we can get the details, but I believe they are uh, Guatemala City, Guatemala City um, uh, Kenya, and two others, and I can get back to you on those, but yes, we have four new embassies in this budget.
5: Given what happened in Benghazi and the tragedy, which all of us felt for Ambassador Stevens and the others who lost their lives, how, are we, how have, have, we done a, have we done a thorough job of reviewing country by country, embassy by embassy, our security and our contingency?
2: Yes, certainly, uh, Senator, after Benghazi uh, and the Benghazi Academy Review Board, uh, the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, uh, as well as the industry for management, the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, led a very detailed review of our embassy security posture, particularly in several dozen of the facilities that were deemed the highest risk. And DS has a number of ways of measuring risk. Uh, It is more of an art than a science but they looked at a number of factors and they designated several dozen of our overseas posts as high-risk, high-threat posts. Uh, And first off, they did create a special directorate within the Bureau of Diplomatic Security called the High Threat Directorate, which focuses on these highest-risk posts. They created new programs, they hired new people, they put in place new uh, controls to ensure that those posts were prioritized for resources and received extra attention in terms of having the right security capacity on the ground. Uh, We reprogrammed at that time about a billion dollars of savings that we had gleaned from Iraq and reprogrammed that to both facilities and personnel to uh, basically bolster our security posture at those and other posts. And then we have sustained those investments uh, as part of our ongoing budget request. And we are still in the process of standing up some increased uh, marine security guard presences at I believe 34 total posts. Um, Many cases we still have to work with the local governments and get permissions and find the right housing. Uh, but we have that funding uh, both uh, in our part of our base budget to sustain those efforts. And I believe we have implemented uh, all but, I think, fully implemented all but two of the Benghazi ARB recommendations. And the last two, I believe, are really because of policy, uh, local uh, host nation issues, and not because of funding.
5: Once you get outside the, the high premium appointments like Ambassador to France and Australia and a few places like that, The rank-and-file diplomat who's on the front line of the United States of America are embassies around the world that people have never heard of, and they risk their lives to do so, or they put their lives certainly at risk. I think it's very important that we make sure they know that we care about their security and that we're planning every day to see to it. Every person deployed overseas on behalf of the United States of America is as secure as they possibly can be, and we can make them. I am a big believer in soft power. It works best when your heavy power is already working in hands, but soft power only works if you have the type of volunteers and the type of people committed to, willing to commit their life to represent the United States of America. So I, there is no dollar we should spare whatsoever in in, in, failing, in securing the security of our embassies around the world and the people we recruit for them. And I just want to put that in the record because I think it's critical for what you do.
2: Thank you, Senator. And and just to complete the thought on uh, the two, the four facilities that we're requesting in 17 are Guatemala City, uh, New Delhi, India, Kampala, Uganda, and Nairobi, Kenya. And we also have other programs that provide uh, compound security upgrades and other safety upgrades to facilities that are not in the near-term
5: schedule for a new compound. Well, I've been to two of the four and they're good choices. Thank you. One last thing, I guess, while I've got 50 seconds. On Zika, do you all have any input on the request for Zika and addressing Zika?
2: Uh, Yes, we did have input on the request for Zika and although most of that funding was on the uh, foreign assistance and AID side.
5: And I think the budget was completed before Zika became an issue, wasn't it?
4: I think CDC and others have been tracking Zika for some time. The disease is much older, although it had not become as acute as it is now. But we've been trying to work as fast as possible to get where where we've gotten.
5: One last thing, Mr. Chairman. Let me put a bug in your ear about Zika. Uh, a lot in Kansas, in Georgia, in California, and in New York, I think those are the right four states. Private hospitals and facilities gave the, entered the Ebola battle and caused us to be able to cure some people with Ebola and quarantine them with Ebola and they spent a lot of their money. And I think the reimbursement still hasn't come in some of those cases for, from Ebola. And there are a lot of people talking about funding Zika out of the leftover money from Ebola. We've got to make sure that it's left over after we've paid every obligation we had to those hospitals that volunteered their time and their services in the Ebola outbreak. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you.
0: Um, let's move over to uh, Europe for a minute. I had a chance a couple weeks ago to go to Serbia, and and uh, actually met the uh, president of uh, Macedonia and a few other leaders over there. Well, the country's talking about the refugee pipeline from Greece all the way up into Austria, Germany, Norway, Sweden, and Benelux. And talked to several families uh, who had been on the road for 35 days. Uh, I have to report they they seemed to be well-fed, uh, clean. They, they were being taken care of. Nobody was on the road walking. Uh, these people were trained and bus. But there's a, a an ongoing tragedy over there that is not uh, complete at all. I mean, this thing is, is really uh, in its early stages in in my humble estimate. estimate. Um, But I I think one of the questions in June 2015, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees reported that worldwide nearly 60 million people have been displaced. Um, You know, 11 in Syria alone is is one estimate I've seen. Despite these highs, the total US humanitarian assistance request of uh, 6.2, I think that it's 20% less than 16. and further, the amount of, in the migration of refugee assistance account in this year's request decreased by about 250, 260 million. W- what accounts for those decreases in the time when when you hear and see this this growing demand for assistance with the uh, migrants and refugees, Mr. Sastri?
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, so first, uh, you, you're right. There's the situation around the world, especially with Syria, is something that um, has certainly seized everyone's attention and there's quite a few requirements being driven from from that crisis uh, our 2016 appropriation uh, gave us 7.6 billion dollars in humanitarian assistance this was a we thank congress for the support um, it was a uh, nearly a 25% increase from what we had in 2015 so when we were building the 17 budget what we really did was look at what our needs were across two years, across 16 and 17, and to see what we could, uh, what what was the right amount that would be able to meet the needs, while also making sure we balance some of our development funding at the same time, because we want to ensure that we're preventing crises in other places of the world as well. So if you look at it across two years, it's nearly $14 billion in humanitarian over two years. So at $7 billion a year, that is still a very strong uh, footprint for humanitarian assistance. And the other, um, I think, uh, priority we had going forward, and the Secretary mentioned this at the conference in London a a couple weeks ago, is as the U.S. continues—the U.S. is the number one. donor for humanitarian assistance. It will continue to be the number one donor. But in order to be a leader, the other issue that we need to we need to tackle is bringing other donors to the table. So I think it's a, it was a combination of making sure that we have a strong humanitarian funding level over the two-year period, but also making sure that we're engaging other c- countries to uh, come to the table.
0: I noticed Senator Markey has arrived, but before I move to him, as a follow-up question. Sure. All right. Is State Department having any conversations specifically with any of the Arab countries that are not now participating in this humanitarian aid? Uh,
3: so I will take that question back. There, there have been discussions, but I'm I don't have the details, and we'll. Well, well get I'm back happy to
0: it. table that until next week. Would you let uh, uh, the Undersecretary Higginbotham um, sure. see if she wants to respan- uh, respond uh, for the record? Sure. Thank you, um, Senator Markey. If you're ready, um, I'll yield to you. If you're ready. Thank, you, yeah, thank uh, you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for having this uh, very,
6: very important hearing. I'd like to go to Ethiopia, if I could, talk about El Niño, talk about this historic impact it's having in Ethiopia, uh, generational, um, the impact it's having that could lead to malnutrition for millions of kids um, in um, Ethiopia. Uh, and uh, what we're doing, or what can we do to help. This is clearly an exacerbated form of the climate change impacts that we're seeing, um, and uh, that part of the world is particularly vulnerable. Uh, So could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Um, Thank you, Mr. Senator. And I actually was recently in Ethiopia a few months ago and was able to see some of the preparations as they were were bracing for El Nino. Um, our total request in this budget is 513 million dollars for Ethiopia and so and that includes our work uh, a lot of our work in the resilience of uh, communities that have that are susceptible to the, to the shocks that you see uh, when there is a when there is a drought a uh, lot in the dry lands uh, there also includes a lot of our work with them on um, on governance on health and uh, on some of the some of the healthcare, some of the um, uh, the health infrastructure that we that we um, that we help them with. Um, so, so how
6: how are you coordinating, you know, feed the future in your work on this issue? Could you talk about that?
4: So that's something the USAID is. First of all, we are right now actively looking at what kind of posture we need to have on the response side, and so we have put additional food resources and food. Aid into Ethiopia um, since this crisis has become more acute. So I, I think I want to make sure that we say that first. Concurrent to that, though, we we see the ability for agriculture to make a difference. Really, in a country like Ethiopia, it's a lot about land management, water management, teaching people how to use crops that are drought resistant, and really helping them. And I think that we see a lot of that. You know, Ethiopia is one of the countries that was part of the. The Food Alliance that we work, the African Food Alliance, and so those are the kinds of things that they have a direction they want to go. We want to help them get there, but right now we're really focused on kind of the acute need that that are so evident.
6: Okay, so how how is AID incorporating climate change into the developmental risks assessment which you're making as you look at the different regions of the world?
4: So I think there there is a policy issue at play, and then there's a pragmatic issue. So the, there is an executive order that the president signed, which requires USAID and other federal agencies to include climate considerations in all of their programming. USAID has taken that to heart, and so all of our strategies and all of our work and all of our projects now include a climate component, ensuring that we take those things into consideration so that we don't build schools in potential flood zones so that we consider the availability of water on our agricultural projects. And I think that's kind of the step one in that space. Okay,
6: so why why is that important in terms of US, using U.S. tax dollars wisely that we have thought through the climate change impacts in these different regions?
4: Well, you know, there's a project that, that I was recently briefed on that I think is it's a project that USAID is doing with NASA where we are using satellite data to help watershed managers in Pakistan. And the idea is that When we have data about how much water should be flowing, when it should be flowing, looking at that data over the course of a year, multiple years, it helps us to understand. So how much can be diverted for agriculture? How much needs to remain to keep the aquaculture? Those are the kinds of questions we can begin to answer because we've done the right work and we have the right technology to do it.
6: Yeah, the the problems in uh, sub-Saharan Africa were actually the first Mm -hmm. problems. Uh, first areas kind of identified as the problem area for climate change. This goes back to 1976, when it's actually on the first day I came to Congress, the story on the front page of the uh, Washington Star, which was the other paper in town at the time, was on climate change and its impacts on sub-Saharan Africa. So it's a 40-year-old, and talk about how it was going to intensify regional conflicts as they fought over limited resources. the 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 impacts on water, et cetera, then let, would lead to gangs kind of fighting over what was left over, and so all of that has now been borne out, and uh, uh, and I just like if I could then to move over to uh, power Africa for a, a second because uh, two out of three people in sub-Saharan Africa still don't have electricity, and uh, you're making a request here for additional money for. Uh, Power Africa. Can you talk a little bit about that and what progress we've made, and what you hope to do, perhaps over the next five years?
4: So this request includes two hundred and ninety-one million dollars for Power Africa. And I think the ambitious goals that we've set around electrifying Africa, and then this, of course, thanking this committee for the work they've done on path, you know, working on the authorization is something that is important to USAID. It affirms the work we do. It reinforces the message that we we think this, these are valuable things. Um, we've made a tremendous amount of progress right now. We've already got four thousand three hundred megawatts that have already been brought to bear. That's very good for a project that's in its first few years. But what's most important to a lot of us at AID is the fact that we've brought $43 billion of out private and public sector investment into the space. So in an area where AID is contributing a small amount of funding, that all that funding is being matched, doubled, tripled, and quadrupled with private sector funding. That is really something that we, we think is very valuable for an effort that's so broad and such a, you know, such a big policy statement.
6: Yeah, uh, I went with the president to Africa last uh, July. And uh, in Ethiopia, we had a signing of an agreement. And uh, uh, and so could you talk a little bit about the geothermal potential in Ethiopia and these other surrounding countries and what we're doing in order to telescope the time frame it will take to extract those uh, energy resources for the people of those countries?
4: Well, I want to I thank you, and thank you for taking the time to, to make the visit. Um, as a budget person, I think you've tapped my knowledge of geothermal energy. I'm sorry. Um, but I will bring that question back, and we would love to make sure we talk more about it with you and your team. By the way, I,
6: I will say that the utility executives and regulators in those countries reminded me a lot of the same executives in America <laughs> in terms of their... Do we really have to do this? Do we really have to move to geothermal? Do we really have to move to solar? Yeah, it's sunny every day here. You know, maybe mm-hmm. we could do that. you could just see their—they had to show up at the ribbon cutting. They had to, you know, smile, but you could just see they were doing it through gritted teeth. And it's—it's—it's it's, it's a challenge, but it's a good thing USAID is there. It's a good thing these other agencies are there because they have the credibility to help them to. Um, to kind of almost double their electricity generation in just two or three years for the entire country. you know, just It's just amazing and
1: it's working and we thank you for your great work. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And I'm um, just gonna hop through some issues now. Um, I- I'm real interested in this uh, planned Central America investment. Um, we would have reason that if we did it right to be hopeful because the Colombian example of failed narco state to to really progressing economy and democracy and and uh, security assistant around the world. I was with the Colombian forces in the Sinai as part of the multinational force of observers, watching them do that. I mean, it's been a remarkable transition. So that should give us some hope that if we make the investments right in Central America, we could see a similar path if we're consistent with it. I hope we might have a hearing about this in the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee to kind of get into the programmatic side. But the key is, how do you spend the money? Do you spend it right? So we just did 750 million in the approach bill, and this request is for a billion. I think 360 million of it is on the USAID side, and the remainder is through the state budget. But could you just talk a little bit about how you see us starting down this path? If we help those economies be stronger, we can slow the unaccompanied minors. If we help those economies be stronger, they can become you know, uh, valuable security partners. Talk a little bit about uh, there's a lot of ways you can spend that money, right. infrastructure, education, economic development, security. How do you approach a task like that in terms of how the money should be spent?
3: Sure, thank you, Mr. Senator. And I'll, I'll answer a little bit and I'll turn it over to Mr. Napoli who can certainly speak on some of the aid equities. Um, as you said, our, our request in the 17 budget is a billion dollars of which 750 million is here in the state in aid budget. The other 250 is with OPIC and DOD, et cetera. I see, okay. Uh, the, the Central American strategy has three pillars, so the administration has set a, set forth a path, uh, one pillar being governance, one being prosperity, one being security. Mm-hmm. So on the security side, for example, there's a little over $300 million, uh, largely working with, um, working with the communities to increase rule of law, uh, working with training of police, et cetera. Mm-hmm. On the, um, on the development side, uh, we have obviously the three countries that we're targeting, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, and each of those have a slightly different bent to how we're tackling the problems depending on the, um, the, depending on the issues with that country.
4: So I think from USAID's perspective, we always think about what, what's the cause? Why, why are we here? What's the issue? And we assess that, and we begin to look at those underlying factors. So for Honduras, clearly it's economic opportunity And in El Salvador and Guatemala, clearly violence is also one of the drivers of migration. So in Honduras, you know, we've really made significant investments in agriculture and we've increased farmer's incomes for the areas we've worked by 55%. -hmm. So giving people an incentive to stay, generating those jobs and creating those opportunities. And I think in El Salvador, you know, something that's really interesting is, when we get into some of these communities where violence is the most acute, AIDS programming has a very strong effect and it has, it's mutually re- reinforcing with what the central governments are trying to do. So in the 70 plus communities we were doing nonviolent, pro, we were promoting nonviolent programming, we actually saw 60 plus percent reductions in homicides. Mm-hmm. So we think that there are tremendous investments that we can make and that the, there's actually numbers to back you know, those investments. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's see that is and then governance talk about governance that's the third pillar we talked about uh, security we talked about prosperity and sure. then governance was the third pillar
3: right so in governance i think the one of the one of the areas of focus is really the anti corruption in in a couple of the countries and how are we tackling how are we helping those countries tackle the tackle the issue so i know there have been and as you said if you have a wha hearing they can certainly get into the details of how they're exactly doing this but we have um, nearly, I believe, a third of, the, of, that, of our request is um, for, that, for that pillar.
1: Jumping over to Russia, so a billion dollars in the request for the Americas, the Northern Triangle, there's a $4.3 billion request for countering Russian aggression. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that's across you know, the broad area of Europe, Eastern Europe. But talk a little bit about, again, programmatically on that. What are the pillars of that investment? That's a sizable investment. What are the pillars? What are the metrics? Sure. We don't. We I guess we can't affect, you know, the inside Russia dynamic, but we can affect the degree to which surrounding neighboring countries are more resilient to that aggression. So.
3: Sure. So our. Our countering Russian aggression total is 951 million, okay. so it's a little bit um, – the, the higher number you may be referencing includes kind of the DOD, European Reassurance okay. Initiative potentially, okay. but the state aid portion is 951 million. Okay. Uh, the big difference I think you'll see from previous years and what we hope is that we'll see an improvement in the macroeconomic conditions in Ukraine is we don't have – yeah. a loan guarantee in this request. We've done two. We're in the process of completing the third and we're hoping that we'll have a little bit of uh, a little bit of we'll see a little bit of progress. But one of you know we, we're working in, in the countering Russian space, not just in Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia, but also in the Balkans, also in Central Asia, kind of that whole region. And our focus uh, one, our focus in that area is really it really runs the gamut, a lot having to do with uh, training police, and working with working with law enforcement, rule of law. Uh, there's also a lot of governance, especially the energy security area uh, within Ukraine. So there, it, it really is a, it's a, um, it's a rather comprehensive approach in, in the area, but it's not just kind of that, as you said, not just that focus of Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, but the broader EUR area.
1: Let me ask about this, I, and I'm surprised I haven't asked this question before. I've been going to so many armed services hearing uh, The last few years where we've been talking about the pivot or the rebalance to Asia as if it is purely a DOD pivot um, Within state and USAID have you guys made a similar kind of deflection in the in the direction to You know play a larger role uh, in that theater.
3: Yes, and thank you for the question so our total uh, In FY17 is $824 million, which is almost a $100 million increase from the previous year. And so that sustains a uh, a strong uh, strong maritime security piece, a strong maritime security presence, which is something three years ago was, you know, two, three years ago was at at a much lower level than what you're seeing now. And it responds to some of the events in that region. We also have funding to take advantage of some of the political transitions, for example, in Burma. Uh, there's some additional additional funding uh, going in there, as well as a strong um, a strong funding level about almost 300 million dollars in the health er- in the health area. I would just like to add to that
2: briefly that I think uh, it's important to note that part of the platform supporting the, all those programs is, is the funding for our regional bureaus, particularly first for the UR bureau mm-hmm. uh, as well as the EAP bureau. We do have some very targeted increases for increase uh, public diplomacy programming in the Russia's neighbors, about at 1.5 million dollars. Uh, also targeted funding for the EAP Regional Bureau for about a million dollars, as well as some of the new embassies are opening up. So while the increase is not dramatic, I, one of the things we are trying to do in this budget is sustain and restore some of the funding that we've frankly had to sort of trim or constrain over the last two years for the platform for the uh, regional bureaus uh, that are funded under the diplomatic uh, State Department budget as well.
1: Two areas where I think I've seen reductions in funding in this budget request that kind of surprised me, although maybe I'm not reading the line items right. Under the International Narcotics Control and Law Enforcement funding, we have traditionally had funding for Palestinian Authority security sector to work on security cooperation with Israel, and that has strong benefit for Israel. Israel's been supportive of it. If I read it right, the uh, INCLE funding for this security initiative has been about seventy million dollars a year, but the FY seventeen request cut it in half to thirty five million is am I reading that right? and if that's the case why?
3: yes, uh, you are reading that correctly. and that is not a it's not a cut to our activities in the program. it is a natural it is kind of the natural progression of that program. It was very resource intensive. there was a lot of training, a lot of infrastructure, okay. and now we're we're ramping that down to the size that it should be. This isn't a this isn't kind of a cut to the current level of effort. You're saying some that.
1: of the spending in early years might have been one time even like Correct. equipment
3: and things like that, you don't have to Correct. buy. And, and yeah. kind of intensive training Correct. early that on for some of You don't have to repeat the training
1: again. I, I see, yep. okay. And then there's a second one on the, and this is Mr. Napoleons probably for you, on humanitarian assistance. The omnibus we did included a significant increase for humanitarian assistance, but it looks like the FY17 budget request proposes about a 20% cut in that program. And I wondered, again, do I read that right? And if that's so, why is that the case?
4: So I think when we look at the International D- Disaster Assistance account, which is our primary humanitarian mm-hmm. account, I think we take this two-year review, we look at the generous you know, amount of funding that the Congress appropriated in FY16, and we kind of compare that and look across. So 17 was clearly you know, impacted by the FY16 levels. But I think for USAID, what's important is we're, we are gonna continue to make commitments in places that we have significant humanitarian needs in, and we think we can do that in this budget. We will be responsive in Yemen. We will be responsive in Syria. So that does not propose any change in our posture. It's just really looking at the fiscal years, looking at the the largesse that Congress provided and how we would balance that over two years. Last
1: question. Uh, Mr. Chair, I, I wanted to just ask, and this may be less budgetary than programmatic, and maybe I could direct it to Heather Higginbotham if it's less if it's less pure budget, but that's Zika and our personnel so you put out travel advisories about a whole series probably 15 Latin American and Caribbean countries where you've you know warned Americans Especially if they might be vulnerable because they're pregnant or they could you know be in the kind of pregnancy window You've warned people not to travel. What are we doing uh, with our, uh, sec- our embassy personnel or USAID personnel? Um, federal employees generally, it could be with the DEA, they could be with any agency serving in these countries. What are we doing to try to m- make sure that we're do, uh, protecting them to the best we can?
2: Our, uh, our medical office, a part of the Department of State, has issued guidance, uh, a number of uh, guidance circulars for both Department of State and other agency personnel working in these embassies, uh, and while it contains a number of sort of the same type of guidance that we provide to American travelers and American visitors. And we, one of the things we are doing is uh, essentially increasing the time in which people who are particularly women who are pregnant with their families can medevac, which is our term of art for when we basically have someone come home from an overseas post, particularly an overseas post with perhaps not the level of healthcare that you would get in the States. Mm-hmm. So we're increasing that now, letting people come home basically six months earlier than normally would. Uh, normally, I think the time to come home for the last is in the last few weeks of pregnancy and now we're essentially someone saying that a, a, a pregnant woman uh or employee or a family member can come home about six months uh, sooner. And so part of our request in the supplemental is the increased costs that will accrue not just the Department of State, but also some of our interagency partners for that increased uh, cost for uh, coming back to the state sooner.
0: Great, thank you very much. Thank you guys, I just have a few closing questions. We'll try to get you out of here momentarily. Thank you for your forbearance. Um, the UN estimates there are about 13 and a half million people in Syria who need help. And I know we're not the only ones uh, providing that help, but the aid, how much aid are we providing to Syria? How do we get it through the restriction that Bashar al-Assad al- has uh, in place? Through How do we get it through our networks of volunteers? How do we uh, defend against fraud? How are we assured that what we're giving is actually getting to the people that, uh, that we're trying to help?
3: Um, Thank you for the question, Mr. Chairman. So, our, our assistance total that we're requesting for Syria is two hundred and thirty nine million dollars, and that does not include the humanitarian assistance that we will end up giving uh, once we determine.
0: Can I put that in perspective? How much? What what is the portion we give to Jordan right now? One billion dollars. Okay, and is all that one billion for Jordan refugee related, or is that no, not nece- okay. No, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, and the,
3: actually, there's no humanity. That one billion doesn't include any humanitarian I didn't think funding. so. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So the 239 is against zero for somebody like Jordan, for example, on the refugee issue.
3: Right. So our so the 239 million dollars in Syria is not uh, related to the humanitarian. In addition to the 239, we do give money to Syria on humanitarian, but that traditionally we we determine in the year of execution when R- we...
0: Who when are the we... recipients of the 239?
3: I'm sorry. Oh, so the 239 is largely given... We we support the um, armed opposition with non-lethal support. So this okay. is equipment, supplies, food, etc. Uh, also, as DOD... Is that part of the OCO? Allocation? It is part of OCO. That's correct.
0: So in terms of humanitarian aid, no aid... We're not providing any aid in Syria directly today.
3: We we are. So um, the... Re, um, our... We're projecting that we will have to spend about one point seven billion dollars in Syria in, in humanitarian aid. But that is an estimate for the for two thousand seventeen, depending on there's obviously could be a lot that changes between now and then. In addition to that one point seven billion, we're spending two hundred and thirty-nine million direct in the country to help the to aid the um
0: uh, armed opposition with non-lethal I understand that, but yep. I, I'm really trying to get at are we trying to get money through that very confused battle space to these 13.5 million that we're trying to help and to put that in perspective, does that come out of the bilateral aid bucket in terms of the budget? No. Where, where, does, that, huma- where does that 1.7 come from? It
3: comes from the uh, the two main humanitarian accounts, which is the Migration Refugee Assistance and the uh, International Disaster Assistance.
0: Okay, what I'm trying to do is of the 1.7, what how big is that relative to uh, the 22.5 for bilateral aid, or the international, the um, the multilateral assistance, which is only 2.6. I'm, I'm trying I'm so I wait, think to put 1.7 in perspective. We heard 3 billion for Israel earlier. Right.
3: Um, so I, I think the 3 billion
0: for Israel obviously
3: doesn't include any um, humanitarian aid. Right. Uh, if you want to compare. Um, One way to look
0: at it is of the thirty. Is that part of the thirty-four foreign uh, foreign yes. assistance? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. That's all I need. Yes. All right. But how do we? How are we assured? What What are we putting in place to make sure that money gets through to the people that really need it?
4: Um, I think think we could say, I'd be happy to say a few words about that. Thank you, Senator, for asking, because, you know, making sure that people get the aid that we're trying to provide is critical to how we think about this, that they are the beneficiaries, they're the end, you know, this is the end game is to provide that assistance to them. So we're doing a a number of different things. And I, I know it sounds kind of bureaucratic, but it's really overlaying a couple of different approaches. It's making sure that, you know, before it leaves Turkey or before it leaves Jordan, it goes across that, you know, we've inspected, that we've made sure it, it the food is what it, it says it is. We have third party monitors that are actually in country that are using technology, cell phones, you know, photographs, other kinds of things to make sure, did the truck arrive, did
0: people receive the assistance? But in country, is it volunteers that are delivering that, that assistance?
4: We have a number of organizations that we work with that,
0: yes, they are. And so what, no, no, what I'm trying to get at is what type of oversight structure do we have with them to assure that, that this is not being absconded to um, uh, you know, government forces or whatever that we, we wouldn't want this aid getting to?
3: So I think that's something we can certainly have, we can bring back and yep. um, talk to you with the... Okay, just a little more
0: specificity. Talk to me just a little bit about... Um, the administrative overhead. One of the things being involved in various philanthropies during my career, you always look at the overhead, right? And how much money is really being spent? If I look at this right of the 34 foreign, 34 uh, billion foreign assistant, the USAID administration costs are 1.7 round numbers. Is that the only overhead that we have in State Department besides the state operations related agencies um, group there. That was at some $17 billion. But I'm I'm just looking at foreign assistance. Is that the administrative overhead for foreign assistance, the 1.7?
3: So our foreign assistance is both state and aid, uh, has both state and aid components. So when we talk about our people and platforms that are required, our overhead that, that you talk about, we talk about both on the diplomatic engagement side that Mr. Pitkin talked about and the, aid, um, and the aid administrative overhead that you just mentioned. So it's a combination of the two that's required
0: for us to deliver our assistance. Okay, and then talk to me about, last question I have is um, embassy security. I, one of the responsibilities of this job is traveling out to meet our men and women in uniform and, and then people on, on state assignments and so forth. And it really is a, uh, a, a great, um, uh, pleasure to meet these people, dedicated their lives to serving our country and making lives better for people around the world. Uh, and their security is paramount. As, as, uh, Senator Rising said, Senator Kane has said, uh, my question is, I know that we're, we've got new embassies around. I was in the Singapore Embassy, I know we got a new one in London coming up. There's one under construction in Islamabad, for example. Can you talk through, uh, the expense of these after the Benghazi Commission and what are we looking at? Are these billion-dollar, you know, embassies as we go forward? I mean, and and I also saw some numbers. I'm not prepared today to get into it, but we saw some overrun numbers that were fairly shocking on a few of these. So, can you talk, maybe, Ms. Pricken, if you're the one to address that? And we can bring this up next week as well. But I thought we'd g- get into that today a little bit, if you don't, if you don't mind.
2: Absolutely, yes, Senator. Um, well, again, it's it's a it's a twofold issue. One is that. Uh, To a certain extent, costs are increasing. The uh, capital cost-sharing program was initially authorized, I believe, uh, about 10 years ago at about $1.4 billion, and certainly something that we have seen was that the average cost, just based on the cost of construction, um, the dollar going up and down, overseas inflation, particularly in developing economies, costs go up faster than to here in states. Um, that it basically was costing more to deliver the same, essentially, embassy platform.
0: Could you provide for us a record, just some of the recent uh, construction projects, what their bid, what their forecast costs were, and then what the um, ending cost might have actually been? We have to do it today, but I think right. for the record, that would be instructive.
2: We can absolutely do that. Thank you. So in addition to the costs going up though, we also have to uh, make sure that they're the safest and secure facilities possible. And in so many cases we're putting in the latest technology, the latest, uh, uh, high-volume air conditioning and air throw to provide chemical biological warfare protection agents. So we are basically having to make sure that these facilities can face and be protected against a range of threats, whether it's uh, force entry, um, ballistic threats, other types of kinetic threats. And as we've seen, we can't just assume that those threats are only limited to the, what we would call the high threat post or post like Iraq and Afghanistan. Now certainly po- embassies and facilities there need extra protection, perhaps overhead cover if you've been to some of those pl-
0: uh, posts, you've seen mm-hmm. the extra steps that we have to take there. So the buffer zones are much larger. The buffer zones, in the yes. The London office, that was the reason right. it was given as the why that had to be really located. Uh, right, the, the, the setbacks.
2: Right. And those. some of those requirements were emphasized in the Benghazi ARB report. Mm-hmm. And so many times that constrains the, le- the number of uh, places that we can find. To negotiate with the lo- local government to uh, put those facilities in place, so it's something we track. Uh, OBO, the Office of Overseas Building Operations Bureau, does its best to maintain within a, certainly the uh, the budget amount for these various embassies. We occasionally do have to come before the committees uh, and make sure that we uh, realign some money to if we have an overrun, but usually those are offset by savings that identified in other embassies. Um, so, you're right overruns are sometimes do occur, but. Uh, We've managed to keep the overall program uh, within the the top line level set by Congress. I will actually do want to correct something I said earlier. We actually do have three outstanding uh, ARB recommendations that we're following up on. Two are on the public record, uh, and one is uh, could be dealt with
0: in a separate session. And how much uh, prior year embassy construction budget is still unallocated?
2: All of their funds have been allocated. Uh, they do have a significant unobligated balance This uh, of, I believe, over four, $4 billion. It's part of what we would do report to the Congress. But that's because we don't want to—these projects can take up to five years or longer to complete.
0: So they're already committed. They just haven't been spent. They're right. The
2: projects have been okay. committed, and we essentially have the money, uh, money there. So as the construction proceeds, we fit it out. The money has been allocated and is available. Thank you. Mr. Pitkin,
1: on the ARB, the unaddressed three, um, I think I'll ask the classified question as a question for the record that can obviously be submitted back classified, but what are the two um, that are unaddressed? And I think you indicated that they were maybe policy, not funding, but if there's policies that we ought to help with, you know, I I wouldn't want to leave this opportunity uh, without it.
2: one was number seven, which dealt with co-location, which is a theme of the actually the, uh, some of the previous MBC Security acts, which was to emphasize the need to co-locate to the greatest extent practicable and possible all chief commissioner or, or U.S mm-hmm. personnel uh, on these secure facilities. Uh, and in many cases, either because of the number and the size of the US government presence, uh, that is not always feasible and we have to there are various type of waivers or arrangements that uh, DS and the department has to reach with other agencies on co-location. And so that is an area where we're still working through exactly how the process of co-location works.
1: So, and so I'm sure there, there's a lot of co-location and as you're building new facilities, you do it whenever you can, but that's just gonna take some time to get that done.
2: Uh, yes, Senator, and that does drive some of the costs. In many yeah. cases, we're re- replacing distributed, multiple buildings, multiple locations, mm-hmm. some lease, some own, and trying to bring it onto one centralized compound uh, with the setback and all the security enhancements. Uh, the other is camera upgrades. One of the recommendations, number 20, I believe, was on installing the latest generation of uh, uh, cameras to provide 24 uh, 7 coverage. In many cases, we're still, in some cases, we're still working through some issues of visas and getting access to the specific sites. And that's really an issue of dealing with uh, the host government, of getting the technical experts there on site to do the installation. And these, of course, have to be cleared American contractors. Uh, and so there are some facilities where we're still working through the issues with the local government.
1: So that's not something where, you know, we need to provide policy alteration in order to enable it, but it, this is just a matter of something that's going to take a while to get fully implemented.
0: That, yes, sir. That's and ma'am. I'll
1: ask the, the classified question for the record. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
0: I do have one last question. Going back to Haiti, I didn't get to follow up on that. The GAO issued a report in 2015 on part of what was spent about $1.7 billion that and it came with two observations that... They found a lack of planning for sustainability of non-infrastructure projects, non-infrastructure, and then also a lack of USAID-wide guidance on how missions should plan for the sustainability of their infrastructure projects. So two observations. My question is, is what what has USAID done to follow up on that report and uh, use Haiti as a learning experience for future uh, investments like that?
4: So I I think instead, um, I'm not as familiar with the exact way that we responded to the GAO, so I think we can bring that back to you. And But thank you for asking. No, that's fine. Um, I think in terms of lessons learned, there are two things that really stand out to me. There were a number of investments. Uh, the port is one of the issues. You know, We were really trying to support economic recovery in Haiti after the earthquake. And you know, we had an option of building a new port in the northern part of the country or refurbishing the existing port. And we were able to use cost-benefit analysis, use market research, use a number of tools at our disposal, and we were able to pick an option that actually was more cost-effective. So before the first taxpayer dollar went into that project, we knew we had kind of made the best choice with the information we had and i think something else that i would allude back to is you know our ability to bring in the diaspora and how valuable they can be i mean the haitian community has so strong and had such a strong you know response to to the events and i think that's something we really want to keep building on and that's something we've learned i mean when we had the earthquake in nepal and other places we we continue to learn it's it's a lesson we it's refreshed to us all the time where we remember and those communities bond together in a time and a place around a certain kind of crisis and we can really work with them to leverage a lot of that and really do something very special in the, in the aftermath.
0: Well, thank you all. We, we obviously wanna be good stewards of taxpayer money and that's why we had this hearing. I appreciate your preparation and your testimony today, uh, but I also wanna to talk to you and thank you for your career service. I mean, we, we can never do this enough the most humbling thing I've had is to meet men and women in uniform. Uh, Senator Kane has a son that's, that's in Africa now, I believe. I'm um, back, back home now. I'm back home now, but has been serving over there. And, and then you see people in State Department that every two years they, they're moving their family and so forth, putting their, some, themselves in, in harm's way. And uh, I just want this for the record to go back uh, that uh, this is a nonpartisan observation, but how much we appreciate that. We're trying to make sure they're safe. We're trying to make sure this is a career they can continue to build and they're gonna continue to get support from the United States Senate. So thank you guys for being here. We really appreciate your testimony, thank you.